Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the Watermark OC Church Sunday Message. Watermark is a generational community that is crazy passionate about starting a conversation about God, your relationships, and authentic love. If you're interested in getting more information, please click the link in the show notes for next steps. Thanks again for listening. It's our hope and prayer that this message would transform your life. Today, this is going to be an audience participation part of the ceremony. It'll only take a couple minutes, but I invite you, as the words come up on the screen, that you would just seriously envision this as more like a, like a pub song, okay, where you're at a local pub in England somewhere, and it's, and it's football, that is soccer, and you're getting behind your team, and you just announce it. Wherever it says everyone or audience, I can't remember the label, but um, hopefully that'll, that'll come up here in a second. Uh, there we go. Okay, so Levi, and you have the microphone there. This is three generations. At Watermark, we want to build a generational church family. And so this is my father, my Bucky, one of the founding pastors of Watermark. And uh, like I said, I'm Ben, this is Levi. And, and by the way, this ceremony is open to any child in your household, male or female, who's coming of age, and you want to bless them in front of their church family, because uh, that's what you guys are doing. We believe so much in the church family, the new family of God, that you are kind of entering into this agreement or this ceremony, this rite of passage with Levi and with us. And so wait for your cue and then just jump right in. Levi, are you ready? Yes, I am. Okay, cool. Is the church with me? There we go. This confirmation and induction demands honesty. Does anyone here have just cause why this one, Levi should not be invested with the position of follower of the way, kingdom warrior. Good, okay. Now, uh, do you, initiate, Levi, hold just cause? Oh, there it is. Yes, just cause against yourself. Son, do you have any fears, doubts, or reservations about this commissioning, about your confirmation? No, not really. All right, good. What is the desire of this church? Shall we induct this Levi, once a boy, now of manhood, for the task at hand? Good. Levi, do you vow to fight for the king? Yes. <laughs> You're still on. Let's see. Yes. <laughs> You've lost power. Let's see here. There it is. Okay, we're back on. Yes. All right, emphatically. Uh, do you vow to protect and advance the kingdom of God? Yes. Do you vow to keep and spread the faith? I will. All right, to the king. To the king. To the restoration. To the Welcome, son. The world goes not well, but the kingdom comes. Now, the rights of adoption. I want you to know, Levi, that I, husband of Riley... And shepherd of this flock, do install you, the young man Levi, with this proof of parentage. You'll always know who you are and whose you are. You belong to the Lord, orphan no more. You're heir to all the king's things. We consecrate you. We set you apart as holy to the Lord and his mission in the world. And everybody said? Amen. Love you, buddy. This is for you. <laughs> oh, 
Oh, let's do this. Woo! What's it say on there? There we go. All right. Give it up for Levi. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Man, thank you guys so much for participating with that. I know it may seem odd. Uh, yep, when we sheathe that thing, sheathe that puppy. It's not a fake knife. Um, rites of passage, they're kind of like an archaic thing today, you know? Really, the, only, the closest thing we have in everyday life is a wedding. You know, wedding ceremony where people are exchanging vows. But I just want you to know um, that this is a place we're trying to build a faith community that really believes that words have power. We're trying to become a community where you say what you mean and you mean what you say. And so while we may not get it perfect all the time, we want to build a covenant community built on committed love. And that love is offered for anyone here today who's maybe a guest. You are welcome. There's an open invitation to become a part of this family of God if you're a guest today. If you have no idea what's going on, we'd love to talk to you more. love to have coffee and, and just explain our story and hear your story. And if, like I said, if you're a parent of young kids and you are interested in this kind of rite of confirmation for your child, male or female, please email us, watermarkoc.com contact. This is not just a personal thing just for me and my family. We want it for all our families to watch them go before the church and make a mutual commitment of sacrificial love. So just so you know, that's for everyone. Hey, this, uh, this teaching series, the message series that we've been in in the last two months has been called The Servant. We've been taking a look at, at the person of Jesus and seeing what scripture says about him as the ultimate servant. And the thing you should know about Jesus is that he was the servant savior. He came to save the world. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's what scripture says. He paid the ultimate price. The prophet Isaiah, an author in the Bible writing some five, 700 years before Jesus' time, said that he would be the suffering servant. He would come to bear our shame and our guilt and our sorrow right on his back by hanging on the cross. And that when he resurrects, when he rose again on the third day, his new life would mean new life for all of us. Something we're going to celebrate in baptism today. And we'll hear all more about that in a minute. But I want to start today with a story. It might be a, a kind of a different version than you've heard articulating this meeting with Jesus type of moment that I hope everyone in the room can honestly have. There was a moment about a month ago, I was sitting on my front porch in a rare, rare moment of quiet, my wife and I have nine babies, believe it or not. That's not the point of the message. But we have all these kids. It must have been nap time. There's this rare moment of quiet. There was only two babies that were awake. And, I, and there was this thunderstorm. Maybe you guys remember about a month ago, late September, early October, we had these very uncharacteristic thunderstorms for Orange County. And I rushed out front because I wanted to see the show. My wife Riley and I, uh, years back, um, in fact, the year that Levi was born, we lived in Denver. He used to have these storms all the time in the summer in Colorado. They'd come rolling in over the mountains and just blast away. There's something about those storms, you know, that raw, unfiltered power. It's kind of electric. In fact, I think it is actually electric. You can feel it, right, in the air. And so I'm sitting out front trying to catch a glimpse of this storm that's moving away. It ran out just to watch it. And I'm sitting out front watching the expanse, 
just this vast expanse of this tumultuous and brooding skyline. And in a very incredibly surreal moment, I began to imagine Jesus Christ, the coming king. I pictured him emerging out of the clouds in a fiery blaze of glory. I know that seems crazy maybe to some of you in the room. So weird. But it's a verse actually. It comes from a verse. That thought, that mental image that I had in my mind comes from scripture. It's a verse I've been meditating on for the last year and a half during these crazy times that we've been in. It's a verse that I had to look to when so many people, not just people, but Christians, were freaking out. (laughs) Thinking, maybe this is the end. We've never seen anything like this before. It's unprecedented. God's definitely coming back, and I can tell you why. Even the scripture says repeatedly, no one knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. And yet there's this passage in Luke 21, and I found it to be encouraging that I kept meditating on it, reading it, thinking about it, and then referring other people to it for their own encouragement if they were the ones kind of freaking out. And this is what it says in, in Luke chapter 21. In this, in this verse, Jesus is talking about the signs. Uh, most of these signs, before you begin reading, most of these signs took place in his immediate generation or within you know, 30, 50 years after his death. But some would come much later, some that would even come at the end. And he marks that moment with the following verse. Look at this from Luke 21. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, and on the earth nations will be in distress, anxious over the roaring of the sea and the surging waves. People will be feigning from fear and from the expectation of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man arriving in a cloud with great power and glory. But when these things begin to happen, stand up, And raise your heads because your day of redemption is drawing near. That's Luke 21, 25 to 28. I know there's a lot of mystery and a lot of questions. And there's, in fact, a lot of allegory there about the sun, moon, and the stars. Sometimes when Jesus spoke, it was poetical. Sometimes it was literal. But it was all historical, by the way. It's that last line that I think is the one we need to latch on to as a people today. You see, if you focus on that last line, is it all doom and gloom? Is it all, you better go hide and you better run in fear and you better watch out because it's fire and brimstone? That's not what the verse says. It says, raise your head, stand up, your day of redemption has come near. You see, actually from that last line, we shouldn't be nearly as terrified and filled with this judgment and fear as we maybe think. Maybe sometimes we even project on God, though that's not how he describes himself. It's meant to be a moment filled with expectation and eternal hope. You see, when Jesus says day of redemption, I did a little bit of a word study on that, on, that, on that one word, redemption. I looked at the original Greek. And when you see that word redemption up there, the reason it should give you hope and expectation is because you should picture a ransom. Just picture a person that's been taken captive and there's a huge ransom price on their head. And maybe it's your child or someone you know, someone in your family, or maybe your mom or dad, someone you care deeply about, and, and, and they have been taken captive, and there's a ransom on their head. The best way to understand what Jesus is talking about is ransom language. Because when he says redemption, it means that the gap between the parent or the child and the person who has been taken captive has been closed. There's no more space between you and your loved one, between you and your beloved. He's closed that chasm. He's closed that gap with what he did on the cross. 
There is no more separation between us and God because of what Jesus did on the cross. No more separation. And there's no one, get this, there's no one or no thing that can point at you as a believer, someone who has met Jesus and said yes to Jesus. There is no one or no thing that can accuse you otherwise. Think of the judge and jury context, if you, if you want it that way, instead of ransom. There's no one in that courtroom who can say, no, 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 I'm reversing that verdict. No. Because Jesus closes the gap and says, you're mine, I claim you. There is nothing and no one that can say anything against that verdict. I've completely closed the gap. That's what you should read when you see that word redemption on the screen. And it points to this future day. Time spent with Jesus in heaven on that final day. No more suffering, no more death, no more pain, no more loss, no more bodily aches and pains. A new body, a new heaven, a new earth, Scripture says. That's the promise of Jesus for those who believe. But it is for those who believe. It is an exclusive truth for those who believe. We don't like that term very much these days that there would be any such thing as exclusive truth. No, anything can be truth. Truth is relative. I can have it my way and I can still have it the Jesus way. The very word faith is another word for allegiance. There's no my way and the Jesus way. There's just the Jesus way. Learning to conform our whole lives into this way of Jesus. That's why when I described it earlier for, for Levi, a follower of the way. He was gaining entry today as a follower of the way. Long before we ever had that word Christians, maybe you're here today and the word evangelical or Christian is loaded with a lot of baggage for you because politically and socially, we've gotten so confused about what it means to be a Christian. We have no idea anymore what it really means to be a Christian. Well, the very first century, the the people who followed Jesus and wrote about Jesus The first term they ever used was just disciple, which means student or follower of the way. And that's what we need to get back to, by the way, church. You can know a Christian because they follow Jesus this closely. That chasm that's been broken down, they actually embrace that offer of of intimate relationship. And we're so close to Jesus as a church, as individual people, that we start to smell like Jesus and sound like Jesus and look a little bit more like Jesus. This is what it says in Romans 10. Romans 10 says, it's for by believing in your heart that you're made right with God and by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Do you see what I'm saying about this offer for those who believe? What the author of Romans is saying, Paul, he says, if you believe with your heart and declare with your faith, you are made right. That first line, you are made right with God. Right standing. You were declared righteous from the moment you say you believe. I told the the guys who are getting baptized today that while baptism is such an amazing representation of of their faith, it's still just that. It's an outward display and confirmation of their faith. But their faith, that decision they made for Jesus, is already secure from the moment they say yes to Jesus. Paul says you are declared right from that second. The second that you profess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, meaning Jesus is king. Lord is an old school word for king. When you say that, you're declared right. Your eternal security is set up. 
And I think we have some confusion about that as a church. I want to get back to that, that, that afternoon thunderstorm. I told my wife later that night about my very surreal envisioning of Jesus suddenly bursting forth. And again, it was just an imagination, guys. It wasn't an actual vision. I just started to imagine. I just let my mind kind of go there. You know, sometimes when you watch movies and television, you can picture such a thing as you've seen it in 3D or animation on a screen. I could really picture it. It was this, this very serious what-if moment. And I was processing with my, li- my wife later that night how it made me feel. Like, what would you feel if you suddenly saw God emerging out of the sky <laughs> in great power and glory in a size where you don't have a reference or a scope of imagination for the size of him coming on the whole earth, but in your sphere of Costa Mesa on my little front porch. So yeah, at first you may feel a little terror, like I thought. I honestly did, because that's how real my imagination was in that moment. I was kind of filled with terror and awe, like, I don't know if I, I think I might just get just destroyed thinking about it. But then slowly that terror gave way to peace and joy and expectation. And there's two things, there's two things that I would encourage all of us in the room to practice, to start thinking about, and to start practicing right now, if you could. And then we're going to get right into baptism. I'll go through this really quick. But the first thing is this, we should all practice such a mental exercise. We should all practice such a mental exercise. The second thing is we should all share the good news of Jesus with every person we see because imagining God coming back evokes a sense of urgency like nothing else. So number one, whether you're a person here today who knows Jesus, you've been walking with Jesus intimately, or whether you have no idea what I'm talking about, you might practice this mental imagination. You might do this what-if exercise and just sense how it makes you feel. You should feel your beliefs and your idea structures really being tested and kind of pushed about what you believe about the world and who your influences are and who told you to think that way about the world and who gets to dictate moral code, what's right and wrong, and who says so. All those things should start to bubble up as you think about the God of the Bible really coming back because you'll have a radically different experience depending on whether you believe what the Bible says about Jesus coming back or not in this whole what-if scenario. And I understand, I totally get it. Can I just say really clearly, if you're here, you're new, you're a visitor, you're a guest, and you're still wrestling with whether scripture is even historical, I totally get it. Because if you can't check that box off, that scripture is not just the inspired word of God, but it's a historical document passed down through oral tradition and eyewitnesses, events that actually happened. Like I said, even though the words in the book sometimes might be metaphor and sometimes are very, very literal, It's the whole thing as a whole. One book, 66 books, that is the Bible, is a historical, dependable document. As dependable as any history book, if not more, because human beings still assemble the types of histories we're being fed. In the church, the early church writers had accountability and authority structures watching over them for how they compiled and, and, and assembled the books that we have today as the Bible. But if I totally get it, if you're still wrestling about whether Scripture is historically true in the inspired Word of God, then I understand how this might hit a little differently. But if you, if you can't buy into that, that Jesus really was a historical person who walked the earth, performed these signs and wonders, that credit him as being the one and only Jewish Messiah, the Savior of the world, 
I just want to encourage you to check again and, and check your sources about what you do believe about Scripture, what you do believe about the world, and what's right and wrong, and, and what happens when we die. Those are the questions everyone has to answer. Here's one of the verses that you should ponder and you should deeply meditate on in this practice as you imagine Jesus. This verse came to me that same day, that same night as I processed with my wife, this idea of seeing Jesus. And it furthered the fire for me to talk to every person I know about Jesus. Look at this from Isaiah 45. It says, turn to me so you can be delivered. This is the prophet Isaiah speaking to the Jewish people, the Israelites, who have churned away from God. They've churned away from God. And Isaiah, the messenger of God, says this. Turn to me on behalf of God. Turn to me, God, so you can be delivered. All you who live on the earth's remote regions. For I am God and I have no peer. In other words, I have no equal. I solemnly make this oath. What I say is true or reliable. Surely every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will solemnly affirm. They will say about me, yes, the Lord is a powerful deliverer. All who are currently angry at him will cower before him. All the descendants of Israel will be vindicated by the Lord and will boast in him. The descendants of Israel include Jesus' believing people today. We were grafted into that family of Israel after the cross. Just really quick history lesson. So when it says the descendants of Israel, that's us, Jesus' followers, Christians. Remember that thing about redemption? We will be vindicated. We will be redeemed. The day of redemption has come. That's us. Again, that last line is for us, for me and you. But there's one line, and the reason why this verse is on the screen right now, that's just been haunting me and following me as I prepared this whole week for this message. It's a line that was repeated by the Apostle Paul at least twice. Fast forward into the New Testament Bible. This is an Old Testament passage in the New Testament Bible in the book of Romans and Philippians. And it's this one line. Paul says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Just let the weight and the gravity of that sink in for a second. What it means, you guys, just think about it. What it means is that regardless of your belief system today, regardless of where you're at today, regardless of what you think about Jesus, God, the Bible, one thing is universally true. Christ will come again and everyone will be made to bow and confess. Because in that moment, we'll very obviously see that there is no equal There was no better plan. There was no second option. There was no self-salvation project. We couldn't save ourselves. If we're imperfect, just think about how that that premise goes, you guys, because that's the majority of the world today. It's not that we're just like tens of thousands of people are moving to Hinduism or tens of thousands of people are moving to Islam. No, the, the vast majority of the developing world believes in the religious system of self, that, I, that I'll just be good enough to save me. That's how that logic goes. It is. But how hard is it to, sta- to make that statement and then simultaneously know another secret about yourself? That you're imperfect and sometimes you mess up. If you mess up even one time in your life, that whole religious system of self-salvation crumbles to the floor. You just can't get there. And that's the vast majority of the world today, at least in the secular Western world. So there's a better way. (laughs) 
Whether you've accepted that evidence or this invitation of Jesus today or not, there will come a day where it will be irrefutable. How do I know? Again, I look to scripture. Look at Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, 27 says, And just as people are appointed to die once and then to face judgment, so also after Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly await him, he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation. Don't get hung up on judgment or, the, or the, some of the details or the when and how of that. The bottom line is, is that Scripture attests to the fact that everyone will meet him. Everyone's going to meet him one day. So what I'm saying is, is do the mental exercise and consider this. This is please, please, please. I'm not coming with judgment or condemnation. If you've been listening today, you can see salvation, redemption, future hope, no anxiety, Tomorrow can be guaranteed for those who are in Christ Jesus, okay? That's the point of the message today. But I ask this on your behalf. If you're here and you're new and you're not sure what kind of standing you have with Jesus, please, everyone, it's incumbent on you to ask this question. Which side of the bending and confessing am I on today? And how will that impact how I feel when the day of the Lord comes? Which side am I on when it comes to the bending and confessing today? Have I already bent my knee and confessed with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and there is no other and I can't save myself because when that day does come and you've already taken care of that business, you have a radically different feeling and experience when he does come again. Like scripture assures us that he will, even though we don't know when and how. It assures us that it will come. The second thing, a little bit quicker, that this mental practice should do and accomplish in each one of us is give us a sense of urgency. You know, like, maybe we cut the small talk <laughs> with my neighbors and friends. How's your wife? How's your kids? How's your job? Oh, man, did you hear what the president did this time? Just do you know Jesus, bro? <laughs> like, can I just fast track to do you know Jesus? Have you met him? I have good news inside of me. It's incumbent upon me anticipating the day of the Lord's return. I don't know when. I don't know how. But scripture says, eagerly await eagerly await and anticipate the day of the Lord's return. Will that change my substance of my conversations? You guys can participate in the service still. Will that change the substance of my conversations, man? I won't give a rip about what was in the latest social media or news cycle. I won't care because that stuff is fading away. The news and social media cycle is too fast anyway. My brain can't process it. It's worthless compared to do you know Jesus today? I have good news inside of me. I want to share that with you. If you're not sure about where you stand, I want you to be sure right now. And I believe that scripture says we can be sure. I was sitting with a, a sister in the faith, a, a fellow you know, church member, and this came up organically about the family system that she was raised in. And that in their church tradition, you could never really be certain of your eternal security. And I was honestly kind of flummoxed. I was kind of taken aback. I, I couldn't believe that, that, a, that a mainline evangelical or Protestant community wouldn't affirm the truth of what Scripture says. What I read to you earlier from Romans, that from the, from the second you say you believe, you're declared righteous. You have right standing with Jesus and that we're still wrestling through this question. So whether you've been a Christian for some time or you're brand new to church today, I want you to be sure, and I think we can be sure. Look at this last piece from Jeremiah 31. This will tell you what God's heart is. Right here. This will show you God's heart. 
Jeremiah 31, 20 says, Indeed, the people of Israel are my dear children. Remember, as, as believers today, or new believers today, we will be, we've been entered into that family of Israel, are my dear children. They are the children I take delight in. For even though I must often rebuke them, I still remember them with fondness. So I am deeply moved with pity for them and will surely have compassion on them. I, the Lord, affirm it. You know something? If you keep studying scripture, you'll find something out about God's heart. The the Bible says that God is provoked to anger or to rebuke, to use that word. He has to be provoked to that anger. Does this passage say anything about how he has to be provoked to love for his children? No. It's because that's who God is at his fundamental core and his fundamental God-like nature, if he could have such a thing. His fundamental orientation, his default bias, the way God, if you could even put a human turn on him and say he he has a brain, his default, his right away, his his automatic setting is love and delight for you as his children. He doesn't have to be conjured up to that or motivated up to that or provoked to that. That is his default. And that is an offer extended to every single one of us. But we still have a, a barrier. We have a barrier. And, and, and Dane Ortland says this about this scripture, about that truth I just read from Jeremiah. Look at what this author says. He says, we need to understand that however long we've been walking with the Lord, whether we have never read the whole Bible or we have a PhD in it, we have a pervasive resistance to this love, this childlike embrace. Out of his heart flows mercy, out of ours, reluctance to receive it. We are the cool and calculating ones, not him. He is open-armed, we stiff-arm. Our naturally decaffeinated views of God's heart might feel right because we're, we're being stern with ourselves. Oh, I just need these, these, this discipline. Not letting ourselves off the hook too easily. Such sternness feels appropriate, appropriately morally serious. But this deflecting of God's yearning heart does not reflect Scripture's testimony about how God feels towards us. In other words, we are projecting our own image on God, our own self-image of inadequacy and self-hatred and self-despair and self-critique, self-criticism. And we rip apart ourselves apart. And then we say, you know what? He must agree with me. You can't prove that in Scripture. In fact, I've just done the opposite with the Jeremiah passage. Even though sometimes I must rebuke them. Like a child, like Levi or my other younger kids, sometimes I must rebuke them. I must give them correction. Do you think anything's going to come between me and my son? Any number or tally of sins? Scripture says that God is abounding in mercy, infinite in his mercies. He's a, the same author calls him a billionaire in mercies. And when we sin, all we do is take a deposit from that account that is readily available to every single one of us. We hope that this message has challenged and encouraged you. If you need prayer, would like to join a small group community, or are interested in partnering with our work throughout Costa Mesa and Orange County, please go to watermarkoc.com. We would love to start a conversation.